All right, hi, and welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. I'm uh, Ken Krantz, one of your hosts. With me, as always, Chip, that's where you jump. That's where you're supposed to jump in. <laughs> See, last week I didn't jump in. I jumped in fat too fast, so I was holding off. My name is Chip Chantry. I am your other host for this <laughs> guided walk, this audio tour through the back streets of rock and roll. It was like I, I feel like that was a nice. I, I created an image there. I, I painted a picture with words. It was good, but you you made it sound like we're setting up a uh, Bruce Springsteen episode. That is true. And Which, I got it. Okay, I, I'm just gonna let's jump right in to this topic. I have to say, Ken, that when you know we go back and forth and we decide what topics we've done. We so far, you know, go and by the way, uh, follow us at at Rock and Roll Pod on on Twitter. Uh, and, and, you know, let us know what you think. L go back and listen to our episodes wherever they may be. We have a lot of great episodes, a, a couple great episodes so far. Uh, you know, this is maybe our, you know, there's like four or five for us. Somewhere I think around this, there. Is, this is five. We've got a couple in the bank now. We're going to start, we're going to start releasing them uh, with some sort of regularity. And I feel like we've hit some really interesting topics and I hope I'm not speaking out of school because I don't want to, if we release one later, but we've done the New York dolls and, and the, the beach boys and the runaways and, and uh, Bobby keys, uh, Bobby keys, which, which is great and really interesting stories, uh, fairly big names, you know, not super huge names, especially like Bobby keys, but you know, beach boys, of course, when you brought today's topic up, I, I was just being a team player. I was like, eh, all right, I I've never heard of this guy. I guess he's interesting. Another glam, whatever. And then I started reading up on him and watched this documentary and was blown away. And I was I was shocked as to how amazing the story was and how I've never heard of this person in my life. And I'm betting that most people who are listening, unless you searched his name and that's how he came across us, uh, you've never heard of this guy either. But I I can't stress enough all week. Ken and I have been talking about how crazy this story is. It's uh, more people have heard of this podcast than heard of this dude. Like exactly. <laughs> and it's and it's a crazy story. It's an amazing story. It's about an amazing talent. So uh, buckle up, people. And I don't want to overhype it. I don't want to be a Jerry Brandt, if you will. <laughs> There's a there, there's a joke that I already called forward. We don't even know who Jerry Brand is. Yeah, usually but, you do a call back. You know? I know. I'm calling forward. Uh, you're going to learn who Jerry Brandt is, a big hype man. And uh, this this story this week is again like I kind of went into it with like shrug shoulders. I was like, all right, let me check this out. Uh, blown away, You're just totally blown away by this story. And hopefully, you guys will enjoy it as much as we did studying up on it. Isn't he also like? Isn't he from where you live? Like he's from your hometown? Yes, this gentleman that we're gonna we're gonna talk about is uh, was born. They say Philadelphia, but I can see, and there was even an address on some sort of legal document that, that was in the documentary. And he he, uh, I believe, was basically born and raised in Upper Marion, Pennsylvania, which, for those of you who know, right around the corner from what is now the King of Prussia Mall, the King of Prussia Plaza. That's like his dad lived in a house that's like that is right behind what is now. The, the, the King of Prussia Mall, basically, just a couple blocks away. And I say, yeah, and I grew up 10, 10 minutes from there. So, and like, so you would think that, like, maybe this guy who we have not named yet, and I like the suspense <laughs> we're building. Just, we're we're going to wait like, till the very end and give you his name. And, and to tell you his, who he is. Uh, but 
you would think I would have heard something. He went to Temple University in Philadelphia. He, you would, you would think that we would have ever heard of this guy and nothing. And I think, I think we're going to sort of learn why, to a certain extent, something that one of his family members did at, at the very end is part of the reason why. Yeah, you know, yeah. Not that, that many was... people in the mainstream have, have really heard about this. Guy. Right. Yeah. So, Ken, do you want to you want to tell the wonderful listeners out there who we're covering today? Uh, so we're covering um, an artist named Joe Bryath. Who? Joe Bryath. What? Joe, Joe. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not a Joe Bryath. Joe Bryath. J-O-B-R-I-A-T-H. Right. Joe and Bryath. He went by a few names. Like I saw it was um, like Joe Bryath Boone and then Joe Bryath. What was the other one? He went, he went by a couple last names. Yes. And then he sort of used his original, well, he did I, I guess we can throw it out there. He was raised as, which is, this is hilarious. His name, his real name is Bruce Campbell. Right. Bruce Wayne. Actor. Bruce Wayne Campbell. Bruce Wayne Campbell. Yeah. So not only, he's not Batman, nor is he Bruce Campbell. Ash. Uh, yes. He's not Ash or Batman, but his name was Bruce Wayne Campbell. He also went by Bruce Salisbury sometimes. That, that was it. It was, it was name. right. Yeah. So he went by Jabriath Boone. Sometimes it was Jabriath Salisbury. That was it. And, and then later on, and we I don't want to get too much into it. Well, yeah, let's not, let's not give his later names because he he reinvented right. himself even even more later. But so it's just this guy named Joe Bryath, which is like such a weird name. It sticks out, and you're like, you would think you would have heard this who this guy is, but no. Well, no. so here, so let me tell you how how I even found him. So you and I were on the phone talking about what the next uh, what the next podcast should be. Yep. And I went on to Amazon and just started flipping through music documentaries. And I went through, I'm not exaggerating, maybe 10 pages, you know, like I just right. kept scrolling and scrolling and I was getting towards like the bottom of the, the heap. And I came across a trailer for this Joe Bryath. The, uh, the documentary is called Joe Bryath A.D., and what jumped out at me was um, something in the description calling him the American David Bowie. Right. To which I was like, if there was an American David Bowie, I'd have heard of him. Yeah. How do, how do we not know this? Right. Yeah. 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 Especially for me, like David, David Bowie is, um, he was what got me into music. My brother gave me a copy of one of his albums. He gave me David Live on cassette when I was about 11 or 12. And I put it in my Walkman and that was it. Like I was hooked from the from the moment I heard the the opening note, I was transfixed. So I've been Which is interesting because I I before we started this podcast a few weeks ago, I had never heard of David Bowie either. <laughs> uh, all these names you're bringing up that I'm learning about. I'm learning about these great bands, David Bowie, The Rolling Stones, Bruce uh, <laughs> Bruce Campbell Springsteen, all of these great acts that I've I've never ever heard of before that are, you know, uh, just the, the Ramon, the Ramones, the Ramones, right? That's what, I mean, just these amazing bands. I, I was only grown up. The only music I had growing up was I just had a cassette of the Footloose soundtrack. And that's all I ever listened to. So I, I had never heard what? of these musicians before. So I have to fun. tell you while, while you were talking, Ming left and Kahuna slipped in and Kahuna <laughs> is, um, he, he doesn't look impressed with your I'm fuming right now. You're angry. I'm yeah, angry. That's a, how dare you? I know. 
<laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I, 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 I love, I love Bowie too. And like, like I've, I've always been a huge Bowie fan and it's just, again, the, 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 the American David Bowie, how have we not heard? Right. That? So I watched the trailer and the trailer hooked me right away and I sent it to you and was like, I've never heard of this guy, but I think this would be a good story. Let's watch it. And then we both watched it and were completely fascinated and it's still, um, amazing how little information is out there on him right yeah um and and, and again like i said not to retreat but i think there's sort of partially an explanation for that so yeah. uh, stick around to find out why we don't know about this guy so so this guy i guess we go back maybe briefly go through his childhood do you want to start yeah. there yeah so he, he's this kid he was born in 1946 i believe in philadelphia outside of in upper Upper Marion is where he's born and raised. He had a, a an older brother, I believe. And uh, when he was about 12, I think, is when his parents got divorced because his mom was already shacking up with another guy and was pregnant with his right, child. Yeah, his, his mom had an affair and then right. uh, left, left the house, left uh, Bruce at this point with his two brothers and um, went to to live with this other guy who she had a son with right and then he the the second husband ended up killing himself like a year or two later right so so she still spent a lot of time with him and it was really kind of crazy because in the in the documentary the younger brother who was his half brother right like the love child yeah the love child he was like 12 years younger and it was like really shady how like she would like go over to visit the other two boys, but like would leave that younger son in the car because it was like untoward to bring yeah, him in right. all this crazy stuff. So, yeah, so the, he, the mom seems like she had a couple maybe, you know, mental health issues that weren't so easy to diagnose back then. Right. Exactly. And it seemed like he and his mom were very close though, growing up in a weird way. Like they were like buddies, you know, right. and, and she sort of, uh, in, inspired him, I think, and, and was really close with them. And then they were friends and but he grew up to be he was this first of all one thing that they barely touched on but we saw some of his artwork he was a painter that painted these i mean i can't draw for shit no and he these amazing paintings yeah. that this kid put out yes and then he was also this crazy musician he was a singer he was a, a piano player and he created he he would write his own chamber music yeah, basically he, he, parts of these symphonies by the time he was like 15 yeah. i mean he was like a, a mozart beethoven yes. yeah he was he was Unreal. a chi- child prodigy yeah. who uh, could read music on sight, can play instruments by ear. Like you said, he, he composed his own his own chamber music. He, he was insanely talented, um, but nobody in his family seemed to either recognize, nurture, or support it. Like he right. went, I think it was the times, you know, it was the, you know, it was basically the fifties get, getting into the sixties and it was, they were, they seemed fairly conservative and just weren't buying into this, like this, even though he was literally, and it's not even like, oh, Ken and I want to be comedians and we're, we're, we're mildly talented, the two of us, but like this guy is a, this guy is a just registered, just genius. Yeah. And they were just like, nah. Yes. No, I don't even I don't even think they recognized it. It's it's they didn't even know what they had yeah. in, in their in their own son. Um 
he goes to Temple University, enrolls in the music program, but it doesn't seem like school is for him. He, he's having trouble. Oh, and one thing we haven't said is that he is um, openly, I think, pretty openly gay at the time. Right. Which yeah. even even like as a kid didn't do much to hide it, was very flamboyant, very feminine. And, and, and it was interesting because it seemed like his mom was really into it as far as like, oh, they were like, I mean, I think even in the in the documentary they, they referred to as like girlfriends. It was like he was she they were like girlfriends together. Like that's kind of how they but, but yet at the same time, she was would just deny the fact that like she didn't want to hear it, that he was gay. You know, right. so it was just like, oh, we want him to be like this. But no, he's obviously straight and you don't talk about that type of thing. And so. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So he goes off to Temple and is just brilliant. People recognize his brilliance right away. Even I think it was like the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra heard him and was like, he's a wonderkind. Like, this is going crazy. Uh, He didn't. But he didn't finish school. He was he basically just kind of dropped out. But he was he knew I think he kind of had bigger things coming and was like this school thing. Well, so he he drops out and then his his dad was like in the Marines. His dad was a very organized, regimented military guy. And so his dad was like, well, if you're not going to college and you're not going to work, then you need to. So he enrolls, I think, in officer class and joins the army. Yeah. Um, but quickly realizes that it was like a huge mistake to join the army. And um, and he goes AWOL. Yeah. And just takes off. Yeah. To L.A. Where now this is the interesting move. So this is when he changes his name. This is when he goes from Bruce to Joe Bryth. He changes his name to Joe Bryth and moves out to L.A. and mm-hmm. joins the cast of Hair. So I believe this is like 1968 or 69. Yeah, mid, mid to late 60s. And Hair was huge at the time. And he he joins the cast of Hair. He's immediately recognized as um, this huge talent. Um, in fact, he's so good. I believe they said that they fired him because he was upstaging all of his castmates. Yeah, absolutely. So he was in LA for a while with this and then, and was doing other stuff too. Like they, 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 they said he would just always be playing the piano. He was always composing. He had a couple of demos, a couple of songs written that he would even get the cast of hair to sing backup for, and just was just, just talented in every way. And then when, LA the LA production of hair closed the guy uh, Michael I forget what his name is the uh, the producer basically offered everybody from LA he's like look it's opening in New York now come to New York so he moved to New York with him and but then was fired because it was almost like he was too good he was just uh, uh, he it's like you couldn't focus on anybody else it seemed like he he just stole the show and they I think maybe issues and some mental issues but they were just like this isn't working out, you know, but I think he was sort of happy with it because he had all this other work that he, that he wanted to do. You know, he had this, he had this other band that he was forming and, and all these other songs. So I think he was just as happy to leave. It feels like. Right. But then at this point, the army catches up to him. They find him, you know, like usually yeah. when, when you go in hiding, you hide, but this guy went in hiding and like joined, yeah, you don't star in hair, <laughs> You joined a major production. So uh, they're able to track him down and um, instead of facing some kind of like military tribunal, he convinces them that he like lost his mind 
and they throw him in a psychiatric hospital in um, in King of Prussia, I think. In, like, yeah, in, in Phoenixville, the Valley, Phoenixville. Valley Forge Military Hospital. Yeah, in, in Phoenixville. So then he goes away for like three or four months and then he comes out and the army's done with him. He like served his time or whatever. And he makes his way to New York where he starts uh, shopping some of these demos around. He, and he has this – and you might be able to explain this better than I did. He had – I think he kind of formed or became a part of this band called Pigeon. Oh, Pigeon, right. Yeah. Yeah, so he – but like it became fairly obvious right away that like he was Pigeon. Like The other – again, sort of like Hare, he just stood head and shoulders above everybody else and was basically writing everything, writing all the lyrics, writing all the, the music kind of – uh, you would just see him in the the studio in this documentary of like just leading everybody like he just he just kind of knew how to put it all together, knew exactly what he wanted, almost like a more animated Brian Wilson. Like right. Just. Yes. But able to but not taking five years to do something like was just cranking this stuff out. And they, it was pretty amazing. They said he can hear an entire orchestra in his head like he could write and compose entire orchestrations in his head hear every instrument know where and when it it fits he was just his his mind was light years ahead of regular musicians um so he put and and, and by and the music is great too it's like it's like that early 70s very orchestrated kind of broadway-ish production like if you can picture like really good like think about like broadway like hair that type of music like that's what he was writing this singer songwriter stuff but with huge production value very theatrical and just really i mean just really great songs that, that, that would go up against pretty much anything of the time, you know, the carpenters and all right. that, 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 would, that right. Would and, and they weren't, yeah, they, they weren't like, um, they weren't structured. So it was, uh, it wasn't like verse chorus verse chorus. you know, it wasn't like, it was the complete opposite of a Ramon song. They were, they were, um, the, it was like they just flipped. Maybe we'll play some clips and yeah. and and get them out. But they there was no structure. It reminded me of I remember reading Radiohead giving an interview once about um, when they came out with that uh, what, that OK Computer album that everybody went nuts for, and they said that they like all none of those songs had any structure. And they said they learned it from the Beatles, from listening to Happiness is a Warm Gun, because that song goes like 10 different directions in two and a half minutes. And that's that's what yeah. this that's what I, I after watching the documentary, I went and started streaming his music. And that's what it reminded me of. There was there was no yeah. form to it, but it was if you listen to it, it's clear that there was a massive amount of talent there. But you're also not getting three minute radio hits that are going to sell and that agents are going to want to pick up and record companies are going to want to take on. Yes. So um, he somehow gets it into the hands, the demo into the hands of Clive Davis, the president of um, Atlantic records at the mm -hmm. time. And he said exactly what you just said. He was like, I, I don't know what I can do with this. You know, you, the radio is not going to play this. Um, but then uh, that's when, Jerry Brandt, who you mentioned before, enters the picture. Uh-oh. Uh-oh is all I got to say <laughs> right now. So, yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this guy because 
So Jerry so, Brandt is a manager. He, he's he's like a talent booker. He was the real deal. Uh, in, picture – this is what I need you to do, listeners, in your mind. Picture an early 70s Prince Humperdinck from The Princess Bride. This is who we're dealing with. He looks just like Humperdinck, but like with er, like the, the big butterfly collar, oh, you know, open – chest you know that that whole that whole early 70s look but prince humperdinck big hair and he on was cocaine this, for sure on, lots of coke and was this promoter and producer he was the head of um pop music for william morris for a while he was the he was the real so this guy actually touches on a lot of our other stories he was the yeah. first he was the first promoter to bring the rolling stones over to america uh he used to book the beach boys so uh, we, we've covered the Beach Boys. We've sort of covered the Stones through Bobby Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, he, Jerry Brandt at the time was the real deal. Uh, yeah. He discovered, he apparently discovered Carly Simon. Discovered Carly Simon was her first was manager. Juggernaut back in the day. Uh, you know, d- uh, handled Sam Cooke, Dick Clark, even Muhammad Ali on these like theatrical tours that yes. Muhammad Ali would do. Right. Like, he when he, when he had the manager, his, when he had his license stripped, Ali went on a series of tours to, to make money doing like a one man show. Yeah. Jerry Brandt was the one that brought that to him. Uh, Sonny and Cher, who it's like, you, you, people almost laugh at Sonny and Cher, but they were the biggest thing. They were 70s, huge. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he was kind of like every, and he was also a club promoter and a club owner. He opened this club called the electric circus which was this like music club, but like almost like a prelude to studio 54, like this dance club that would have all these like crazy circus acts and just bizarre psychedelic shit going on. And uh, he, you know, so he just, he kind of had his hand in everything, but he was this wheeler and dealer. He was a a self, a self-confessed huckster. Like he, he, he says that about himself in the documentary. People called him, you know, he's the 70s P.T. Barnum. I mean, he was just a hype man, a promoter. I mean, very good at it, but that's what he did. And I think what we're going to see, the theme here for t- for today's podcast is he's a business guy and he was always looking to capitalize on the trend. He, what's hot? Like, he was looking okay, for the next right big now, thing. So I want this. I, You know, right. okay, this is hot right now. I want this. And that's not good artistically. You can't fit a square peg into a round hole or like be like, okay, I think the audience wants the public wants Taylor Swift. So we're going to find the next Taylor Swift. Like that happens sometimes, but you can't force another Taylor Swift or whatever the next big thing is, or, you know, everybody loves, uh, you know, this TV show, you know, Oh, Seinfeld was a big thing. So let's give every stand-up comedian their own sitcom. And we see how that worked most of the time. And he, he tried to do that as we're going to find out with Joe Bryant uh, to amazing, amazing uh, note, which I'm not going to say if it was good or bad. Let's, let's leave him, uh, let's, let's leave him a little uh, suspenseful. Right. So, so Jerry Brandt hears this demo tape uh, that Clive Davis plays and it jumps out at him right away. So glam rock. So this is like, I want to say it's 1972, 73. Right. Yeah, right around then. Glam rock is huge. Uh, David Bowie had just broken through with Ziggy Stardust, which became absolutely gigantic uh, across the world, in America especially. And so Jerry Brandt hears this and thinks, um, 
there's something very talented here and and uh I think this is somebody I want to I want to get involved with. He heard it. Clive Davis was like I can't do anything with this. Jerry Brandt heard it and to his credit thought I think I can do something with this. And goes and flies out to um California to track Joe Bryant down. And they he introduces himself, says who he is, shows him his resume and says I want to make you a huge star. To which Joe Bryant is like well, yeah, like I, I want to be a huge star, you know? Right. And he, he even – apparently Joe Bryant was shrewd in his own respect and was like, look, well, I'll sign a deal, but I want it to be 50-50. And he even compared it to – he's like, I want our relationship to be like Elvis and the Colonel. Right. Like the two of us, 50-50, let's do this. And uh, the, and they agreed, so they're like, let's, let's make this thing happen. And – the, again, the music was great, and it's 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 sort of rock and roll, but it's theatrical. It's there's a Broadway and a classical element to it. There's not really necessarily glam, but that's sort of where Jerry comes in. Was like, you're going to be the next glam rock star. You're you're going to be the American David Bowie, right? And that's not exactly what it was, but he's like, well, we're going to make it that way. Yes, and that's how we're going to market you, right? And you're gonna you're gonna put on makeup, and you're gonna put on spandex and and makeup and all this stuff and and glitter and i mean he was definitely very flamboyant before but it was a more natural thing and then it was just like we're gonna we're gonna turn you into this weird being yes yeah we're gonna out glam every glam artist that's that's big right now it's it's almost like it's like to picture it this way ken krantz a very funny comedian and then i come along as a manager like, all right, Ken, I see what you're doing. Very funny comedian. I'm going to now make you the world's biggest magician. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, well, <laughs> well, I'm not really a magician, but okay. And we're like, I'm going to, you are going to be the biggest magician in the world. And you're like, well, I just tell jokes. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's cool. It's cool. I got it. I got it. Yeah. You're going to become the next David Blaine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with Jerry Brandt and Joe Bryant. Yeah. This story gets so crazy. So, um, Jerry Brandt, uh, he, he convinces him, you know, they, they, they draw up a partnership and it's like one of those in perpetuity partnerships that always fucks over the artist. And, um, he gets, Jerry Brandt gets to work, uh, marketing Joe Bryath and he, there's disputes about, um, the kind of advance that that uh, Joe Bryant got, but they say it was between like three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars as right. as uh, for a two record contract, which was unheard of in those days. Um, Jerry Brandt becomes like he becomes like this marketing machine for Joe Bryant, and it's like you said, like a like a PT Barnum. Um, he, they, they dump all this money into marketing. Um, Joe Bryant's, uh, billboards go up in Times Square, like giant fucking billboards, like 40 feet by 40 feet billboards. His face is plastered all over the sides of buses in New York and London and Paris Jerry Brandt. Up to up to two thousand buses 
had this guy's face on it. And and not only – so it's this crazy marketing of which nobody's ever heard of this guy before. Like unless you're like in this little inner circle of these musicians, it's not like you know Coldplay is coming out with a new album. Right. So it's like everybody knows Coldplay. And then there's, it's just this like weird guy that nobody's ever heard of. And then they make it extra weird. Like this – and picture in like 1973 or whatever it is. These billboards is not just of like some rock star, and it's not. It's like David Bowie times five. It literally this. It's one of the most disturbing, I think. Oh, album that, the covers. album like, cover, yeah, I loved he's it. Like naked, he's like naked, but like it's br- he's broken in half, and it definitely it reminded me of a Marilyn Manson. Album yeah, cover he, to he, yeah, he he's he's like he looks like he's half human and half statue crawling yeah. while his like below the waist is crumbling yeah and it's, it's just, like like a statue in decay but that's somehow i don't know i i actually thought it will when we when we post this we'll put a picture of the album cover up it was it was yeah. wild so what and Je- it was just and it was really cool and some people loved it but like it was kind of shocking and like just to put yourself in what i would imagine 1973 standards is like this is weird. Like this is crazy, but it's just everywhere. So everybody is just anticipating this guy who they've never heard a a note of. They know nothing about this. Nobody's all of a sudden. And he's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. The hype is ever. So here's, so here's what, here's what I think Jerry Brandt was trying to do. And they, they touch on this in the movie. When David Bowie came over to America, they were so set on making him a star in America. He'd already broken um, in the UK. He had four albums under his belt. He had a couple really big hits in the UK, you know, with he had Space Oddity, which they played during the, uh, which in uh, BBC played during um, the, uh, the, the moon launch, you know, the, the, the Neil Armstrong one. Yeah. And, um, he had put out that album Hunky Dory, which had changes, which both those songs were minor hits in America. So there was some recognition of David Bowie in America. He wasn't the the massive superstar yet that, that he went on to be when he created Ziggy Stardust, but there was an awareness of him. If, if you were a right. big music fan, chances are you'd at least heard of David Bowie. So what David Bowie's management team at the time does is they come over to America and they say, we're going to present him as a rock star. If we convince everybody that he's huge, if we hype David Bowie up to be huge, people just believe it. So when he comes over to America, it's first class all the way. He's booked in all of the nicest hotels. He's taking limos everywhere. They are just spending money. He was broke. Like, you know, David Bowie barely had two nickels. But they, the, the record company was spending money on him to give the appearance that this was, uh, that he was a much bigger deal than, than he was. And it, I mean, it paid off because he was David Bowie and you can't hold that kind of talent down. So the strategy with Bowie worked, right. but... Bowie had already put some time in paying his dues. He, he had four albums under his belt. He had several tours under his belt. So when they did it, they gambled with Bowie and it paid off. So Jerry Brandt decides he's going to adopt the same strategy with Joe Bryath. And we're just going to market him into a huge star. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, they, they were sure it was going to work. And then I, and like they even said that the I think the album was going to come out in the summer, it even got pushed back a little bit. So then it finally came out in October of 73. The album comes out and like everybody's ready for it. Right. And, and it, then it tanks. Just it, it doesn't even chart. It doesn't even like, you chart. Know, you know, there's it, like I, I loved it in the documentary when like you see somebody like they show the billboard chart list and then it's like up at number one and then drops down yes. and you just kind of see it. It just kept dropping. And I was like, well, it's got to stop at some point. <laughs> That's what and I thought. Just, I was like, it went through. I was, I was like, like, well, oh. it probably debuted at like 50 or something. And <laughs> the chart just kept dropping. And then you see it get down the 200 and he, he doesn't even chart. Um, this, it's the biggest promotion ever. I mean, it was just huge. And then just zero payoff and not only zero payoff was, but people were just ready to hate it. People were ready to hate it. It was so hyped that people wanted to hate it. So they, they show there was Joe Bryant posters and flyers and banners everywhere. And Joe Bryant, it reminded me of that Simpsons episode with, with Gabo. Do you remember like that little ventriloquist right. dummy? Yeah, it was yeah. like Gabo is coming. They spent the whole, that's what it reminded. So the hype, it, it backfired. And then the fact that he was openly gay and, and they were promoting that, you know, they saw David Bowie flirting with, um, you know, being bisexual, you know, he, he, I don't, I don't think Bowie ever truly was, but they, they use that as part of a marketing ploy. But what they didn't realize was like, Bowie can hint around at being bisexual, but at the time he was married, his wife was in all the pictures with him. So even though he was kind of flirting with being outrageous, you can look at him and be like, oh no, he's married. He's, he's a family guy. This is all just pretend. But, and it was all just a wink and a nod thing too. Like you look at somebody like a, even like comedians like a Paul Lind or, you know, you go to Liberace or whatever, mm-hmm. like Liberace, the most flamboyant guy in the world, but never it, said, it, never said he was never, never said it. And that was just the game that was like, well, okay, we don't talk about those right. types of things. They, so therefore it's okay. So you can be as open, you know, like as flamboyant and over the top as possible, as long as you don't come right out and say it. Right. And that was one of the big downfalls of Joe Bryant was like, yeah, I'm gay. And that's it. Like, not only am I gay, he's like, I'm, what did he call himself? The true fairy, the of true rock. fairy of rock and roll. Yeah. And um, so they're just like, let's go the other way with it. We're going to say it. We're going to totally own it. And what they didn't realize was that the public was not ready for that at all in 1973. No. So between, uh, between a public being turned off by the massive, massive amount of hype um, and, you know, uh, probably a good good deal of uh, homophobia. Absolutely. The album absolutely tanks. It was like people wanted it. People wanted it to tank. Yeah. And even in, they would think, he, they were even thinking, well, at least like the gay press would be behind this guy and be like, look, he's our champion or like, Hey, he's one of us. And they ignored him and sort of hated him because it was this swing of these guys who at the time they kind of wanted to come off as masculine. It was, you know, this masculinity right. thing yeah, the- in, in, in the gay community. So it wasn't even like, 
oh, well, he's he, he was too effeminate for them. Yes. And he was just like, we don't we don't want to own this. This is not who we are. We're trying to prove that we're we are men and we're manly. And that's not what he was. So even the gay press completely ignored him, should be in it, should have possibly been in his corner and just just totally didn't didn't do that. Right. So he is. um He's hated. He's hated by a good deal of the public who who never even heard a note of the music. Mm-hmm. And um, I say that also without judgment. Like I feel like if I'd been around, you think of whenever you see anybody that gets that much hype. There's there's part of you that's just before you even see what it's about, you're kind of hoping that it's not true. At right. least I. I mean. So um, and and part of it, too, was even among the music community and, and, you know, the 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 rock uh, critics and all that, too. Part of it was and again, it was this hype of like he is this fully formed rock star that they are just pushing mm-hmm. on the earth. It's he's an alien that came down and this is what it is where. But what he didn't have was the at least to the public's knowledge, he didn't pay his dues. No. He didn't play those small clubs. He didn't come out as a struggling you know, it was almost like a like a boy band type of situation where it's like, oh, this is just manufactured. Yes, this is he didn't really pay the dues. The guy paid his dues over years. Was an amazing musician and and he had, did a he, lot had of that the, stuff. he had the talent for sure. But he he didn't. It wasn't presented that way. So they're like, screw this guy. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's all fake. He can't stand up to this. He can't be that talented. And so people just didn't trust him and didn't like it. And was like, no, this is, you know, this this doesn't fit this. This he 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 hasn't earned this yet. Even, like again, again with you said with Bowie, Bowie had a bunch of albums behind him. He did the legwork. Bowie that had toured. Saw. Yes, yeah. yeah. Nobody saw with. So then they were like, "All right, this is a, this is a huge flop. We've lost all this money. Didn't even chart, but we, we still have the support to a certain extent of the label. We still have some money. Let's they, go out they, and tour. Right, and they announce that he's going to play." Th- three or four nights at the Paris Opera House. And it's going to be like a $200,000 production. And if I have this right, Joe Bryath describes it as the, the show is going to open with a giant replica of like the Empire State Building. Which and, is just pretty cool. And if you think about the symbolism behind this, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. And he's going to come out dressed as King Kong and climb it. And then the top of the Empire State Building comes off, like, ejaculates. He takes off his King Kong costume, and he's dressed like Marlene. Marlene Dietrich. Yeah, the, the actress. And From it, King Kong. Right. So, um, they start to... Uh, they, they rent, they get an old barn house, an old barn in, um, in Lambertville, uh, in Lambertville. Is that New Jersey or Pennsylvania? I think it's Jersey. I yeah. Think. But it's like right on the border. Yeah. So they start rehearsing in this old barn for these that, shows that they converted into this crazy, basically theater, big stage. All the lights were out. You know, they had all, you know, the, the whole lighting rack, they had this whole, whole thing so they could just go in and it felt like it was a theater right? and they could just go in there and they were in there for a couple of months. It sounded like they got these musicians together and put together this band and apparently they got really tight. They got really good. Yes. Yeah. There's some clip, there's some clips and they did, they did become a, a pretty tight rock band, but, but try and picture this, this guy, 
is announced to the world with one of the biggest ad promotions ever put into a musician, uh, probably before or after. Right. And is hyped for months and months and months. It's announced that he's playing the Paris Opera House. They've still never performed in public. They have still never played one single show. And then their first public performance is on national television. Yeah. It's, it's on a show called the midnight special, uh, which, which used to come on, um, Saturday nights and it just would have three or four different acts and it was just live music. Jerry was huge. I mean, it was a huge show. So it, it would be like, this is what like I was SNL com- almost. This is what I'm comparing. Yeah. It'd be like you decide you want to be a comedian one day and some manager gets a hold of you and tells everybody that you were going to be the single, you're going to change comedy and you're, you were, the, you're the next Messiah of comedy. You've never once performed in public. And then your very first show is like the tonight show. Or Letterman. Like, that's the very first time that you perform publicly. This guy's first public performance is on a huge national TV show. And it goes great. (laughs) It does not go, it does not go great. Oh, okay. All right. It goes. It was was kind of a disaster. They they didn't know what to do with him. Um, He, he... Uh, he opens his first song they do, uh, I'm a Man. It w- was something he wrote. It's, and there's like an old blues song with the same name. That's, that's not it. But he, um, he came out dressed like, like the, I don't know how to describe, almost like the Tin Man from, from Wizard of Oz. And then, but if the Tin Man was in a ballet about the Wizard of Oz. Right. Yeah, it, it, very, very flamboyant. The band is dressed completely in black, so they just almost look like, I think it was supposed to just look kind of like floating heads, but the TV right. cameras give all that away. Yeah. So whatever whatever they were going for didn't didn't translate. And, and people are trying to censor this in real time. Like, I think anymore, there's just so many barriers, but like, they were like, they were going to do two songs. And by the second song, they're like, you can't sing this second song. These lyrics are way too suggestive. You can't put this on national television. Yes. Right. So the, the song they were going to sing was a song called take me. I'm yours, which was all about uh, gay bondage, which you, you can imagine in America in 1973, you couldn't, you couldn't sing an entire gay bondage song on national television. So they they they, no. they switch over to some other song, and he comes out wearing a giant fishbowl over his head. And then he yeah, presses, like yeah. He presses a, but the thing is, it was like just some shitty prop, and you can see everybody's fingerprints all over it. Now, if you had seen mm-hmm. this, uh, if you'd seen this at a concert, you wouldn't notice all these details. But right. with all the with the television lights and the TV cameras and you can't hide anything from them, 
it comes off very amateurish chintzy it just looks so chintzy it, it it reminded me of those cocoons that spinal tap came out of and like the bass player's cocoon wouldn't open remember that yes, like, yeah right it wouldn't open. yes, like, yes. It was like that. or or like the the stonehenge <laughs> you know the tiny stonehenge right and, and that's what it felt like it just you looked at it and it just it looked amateurish like if they would have actually just come out in street clothes or just regular you know, just rock star clothes and sang the songs. I think it would have gone over pretty great. Yes. They're great songs. Yeah. Great songs. That's, that's the thing that, that got lost in all of the hype of this is that there was actually something there. Like this wasn't, his image was produced, you know, they, they, they tried to, like you said, like just force him into this rock star role. But, um, he had the chops the 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 music the music's good it, it's amazing it's amazing music and it just that was just nobody could concentrate on that like he rips off sort of the tin man outfit and then is like basically just in this leotard spandex yeah like skin just a suit, full leotard, body suit just like doing sort of half-assed ballet and while the band is just sort of playing in the background in their black clothes and it ju- it just looks so cheap and amateur, and like you just feel bad. And that was that was really sort of the beginning of the end before it even started, because it was just like this just looks terrible, and, right? You know, yeah. So now they have um, so now Jerry Brandt books a club tour to get ready for the for the Paris Opera House, and um, he starts. Finally, they they start touring and and playing live. Um, some of the shows go well. The majority of them don't. Like people, it, it almost seems like people are coming out um, wanting wanting to see him fail. Like they talked about doing a yeah. show at Nassau Coliseum, which, when you think about it, that's pretty amazing. That, pretty big. That, that you know, that's um, Nassau Coliseum's comparable to like. The Garden or the Meadowlands, I think, as far as how many people you can fit. So he was doing some big shows, but they all came out throwing shit at him, um, you know, making fun of his sexuality, calling them calling Pop them slurs. slurs. Yeah, uh, and they rush the stage, and the band has to run backstage because they were going to get beat up. And he's he's backstage sobbing and crying. I think he's starting to realize that, you know, maybe this is coming to an end. Yeah. Um, they go on. They they. The record company sort of stops uh, sending as much money as they were. Um, their budgets are getting slashed. They come out for one show. You know, everyone's hearing about the Paris Opera House and and it's so hyped and so people I think are coming to see what what the show would have been you know they're they're told about all this outrageous stage show and then they're like on a they're like on a club tour for the most part playing to you know maybe just hundreds of people at a time instead of thousands and, and even this this stage show that these people some of them were legitimately like people especially in the gay community were like let's see this. I'm kind of excited. And 
so in, in one respect, it was too flamboyant for some people. And in another, another respect, people were excited, like to go to the Troubadour to see this crazy stage show. And like, they kind of came out in like jeans, jeans and sort and of half it's, it's like, it's like if you went to see Guar and you're really excited to see Guar, <laughs> right. and a guy comes out with like a monster t-shirt on yeah. and like, throws a pepsi at the crowd and they're like good night <laughs> right like, it's, I, like, it's not it's what like, i wanted remember when full... kiss decided they weren't doing makeup anymore right that, that's not what we paid for right that's not what we signed up for gene simmons yeah and that's so it, it, it just seemed like but again amazing music like if if he was just this guy who started going out and touring he would have murdered they he just did and they did everything ass backwards yep. if they had started with the club tour and then you go into the first album and then you start hyping it a little bit. Right. And so, and, and then, so he's, he's trying to get the stink off of that and tries to go and they do, a, they release a second album, 74 with zero promotion because they basically just, well, he didn't even, he, they didn't even record a second album. So oh, that's right. They weren't going to, that's right. They, 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 promote, they yeah. he had a two record deal and they just took, songs that didn't make the first album he doesn't yeah. even go into the studio to record right. the second album um and uh at this point um the paris opera house like it gets pushed back and then it just gets can't electra's like we're done we're done and then people are thinking that jerry brandt is such uh, like a hype man and bullshit artist did it even actually exist did yeah he really yeah that was this, or was this just another you know another smoke and mirror show right so a few, a few of the musicians hinted at that they think that it was something here's here's why i don't think it was um here's why i don't think it was made up i think i think jerry brandt probably really did have the paris opera house book because they started building the set he, That's true. They, That's true, he's yeah. dumping money into the production of the set right so um and to, to Jerry's credit, they they were trying something. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and he was like, "We are going to build the show. It's going to be the Paris Opera House, and then it's going to be at opera houses around the world, and it's going to be the first time that rock and roll has really captured opera and yeah, the theater. theater." Like there right. were a couple of rock operas, there were a couple of things like that, but this is the first time that they're really going to capture that. And, and really merge all of these things and become a great thing. So, I mean, he did have, I think, good intentions to a certain extent, but just went about it the completely wrong way. Right. I think he, but, they, but go ahead. He, he thought he could just hype this into existence. Right. And the sad thing is it's like, you know, to, to bring it back to comedy. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's what we can relate to. It's like when you see these YouTube stars, out of nowhere that are now like you and I have been doing comedy for each over, you know, a decade and right. we're, nobody knows, nobody knows us. We're not outside of right. outside of our respective areas. We, we can't draw anywhere. Nobody knows our names. So when you see like all of a sudden you see like a YouTube comic who's never done clubs and now is selling out clubs and figuring out an act, you know, on the fly, Guys like me and you were like we're rooting for them to like you want them to fail, right? Yeah, there's that that jealousy and that that animosity, and they again they didn't pay they didn't dues. pay their dues. They're not doing what I did. 
I think what what got lost in all of that is like, okay, maybe he didn't pay his dues, but fuck, he he had the talent and the music was great. And he paid his dues in the respect of like coming up through the theater world and the, the and the classical music world like that he did. And if he just kept at that trajectory and not tried to do this fake thing, it, people would have seen that. I mean, they, they even said, and I thought it was just such a weird thing. They did this show in Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, yeah. at the University of Tuscaloosa. Yeah, where you would think where they, they would did get the show and ran out, murdered. Yeah, and apparently the crowds went nuts and they loved them, and it was. Encore after encore, and it was this college crowd yes. that just went crazy and loved him. And it was like they were like, if they would have maybe just gone on that circuit, that more modest path, right? They could have built up to that over a couple of months, over a couple of years, and crowds were loving him because they were they were great and they were great performers. And it was great band, and it wasn't this whole crazy production, right? But it's it's too little, too late. So it's like yeah. at this point, the, the the record made absolutely no money. the The tours are hit or the tours hit or miss. Some nights are great. Some nights there's barely enough people to to play to. Um, and this was in the days before social media, so it was like I don't I don't know how much I don't know how much national. It didn't really go into that. Like I, I know right. Jerry Brandt was was such a big part of New York, and he said that um, breaking him in New York was was the single most important thing. So there was a lot of awareness of him here, but mm. I I don't know what it would have been in in Alabama. Yeah. So so the money runs out even with the second album. Jerry Brandt didn't really touch it because even he admitted he was like, well, how can I go back to people? I I. I'd sold them on how amazing this first album was and, and nobody fucking bought it. So how do I yeah. go back and sell them on a second? Yeah. And it just didn't work. And then Electra eventually dropped them basically, you know, so he's done. Electra drops him. Jerry Brandt drops him. Yeah. So they, they part ways and it, it, it was never totally, you're getting it from Jerry Brandt's perspective to a certain extent. There was obviously animosity, but it was just like, you know, Hey, there's nothing more we, we can do let's just part ways it didn't sound like there was it, it didn't sound like animosity coming from jerry brand although no um granted they they interviewed him back in i think the documentary was like 2012 or something like yeah, that so like there that. there was like a, a pretty significant amount of time had had passed so maybe even if there was animosity he'd he'd you know sort of forgotten about that and right um so so around this time is when Jabriath kind of drops out and was like, he goes back because to a certain extent, he didn't have any money. He goes back to Upper Marion outside of Philadelphia to go chill with his family for a while and just, you know, live with them, which didn't go well. He stayed for a couple of months, sort of overstayed his welcome. Yeah, his mom and, throws him out. She's like, either get a job or. Yeah, and still not embracing his his major talent and just like get out of here. So back. So I think he was kind of bouncing around for a few years go to 1977 when he heads back to new york tail between his legs he's like i'm gonna make it but i just need to totally reinvent myself i just need to distance myself from this joe Bryant thing he, that's when he sort of renames himself and he try, he does a completely different style of music which is probably what he should have been doing from the get-go right so he he begins um he begins tinkering around he has this really cool apartment 
Uh, oh, um, my God. It's the great that, that might be my favorite part of this whole documentary, seeing this apartment. Yeah. Which was on top of the Chelsea Hotel in New yeah. York. And there was a I don't know if it's still there, but there was a pyramid on top of the hotel. And there was an apartment inside this pyramid that overlooked the Empire State Building. And it was just this loft, like it was just this one room, this giant pyramid that he lived in. There was a loft where he slept, and then he had a piano and, you know, I guess a living area. And that was just his kind of spot. And it literally seems like it's like Royal Tenenbaums-ish. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, just to to see this place, and that's where he just started playing the piano again. And he's writing, he's performing, but he's going back to his roots of classical music, of – Early jazz, like 1920s, 1930s, Irvin, Berlin, Irvin Berlin, uh, Order, you know, a Gershwin. And it's he's great. He's really good, you know, writing his own music, but then also covering this old stuff. And it's like and he totally looks different. He looks older. He's you know, he's got his haircut. He's got the mustache now. He's like kind of Mr. Classy. Fan, yeah. You know, the late 70s, early 80s at this point where it's like, you know, things are kind of cleaning up and um so he basically he re, you know he did go through tough times though he's like he was actually like he was kind of destitute he was hustling at a certain point you yeah know? Like he, was, he became you know, like a male prostitute when male he needed prostitute money for a while he he you know he's so he's going through that uh, but then he reinvents himself and calls himself and it's a little on the nose but he calls himself Cole Berlin right uh, you know after Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and he starts playing these piano bars and just doing all these old numbers from the 20s and 30s but still and, dressed flamboyantly and yep. still injecting his own personality and humor into it but um you know and he's doing it just to sort of pay the bills because he has to he needs to do something but then he just starts developing pretty quickly this huge following in that community in these piano bars in these cabarets and just becomes this underground star some people remember who he was from before right like the you know there were people that would even come and be like oh play i'm a man or like one of your songs from the joe bryant area and he's like no no i'm not yeah he's i just thought that was sad he said i won't i he said i won't cover my own music he said i don't play my own material which right which 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 is really sad you know so he because he's really trying to distance himself becomes a sort of a star in this underground scene but then is also composing music, is writing music. He gets this gig for – I forget somebody was doing this. I don't know if it was on Broadway, but this big musical that was a musical adaptation of uh, Moliere's The Misanthrope. Right, right. And but they throw out music- the score. They, they want to yeah, do it like- and start from scratch. And they hire so Joe Bryath. He, he writes everything, lyrics, score, and- everything. Like, and they're like, like in a couple weeks. Overnight. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like apparently like in like two days he had like four songs written already. And then just in breakneck speed, like nobody can do, writes an entire score for a musical. And that's apparently great. And then he has, which is I think my biggest uh, upset from this thing, is he writes his own – starts writing this play, but at least the music to this play called Sunday Brunch. Yeah. About – a tourist just listen this this is amazing a tourist that comes to new york and meets all these crazy people in new york and remember this is like 70s early 80s new york and meets all these people and it's called sunday brunch and it's very like 1920s 1930s musical kind of thing but basically he just starts getting eaten alive in the streets because people are quote unquote having him for brunch right and yeah he's the brunch (laughs) he's the brunch and like 
how great of a musical idea is that? Like this guy could have been easily another Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, right. No doubt. This guy, if he would have stuck with, you know, after hair gone through, stayed you know, on that path, uh, stayed on that path. I think he would have been possibly bigger than Andrew Lloyd Webber, like just his musical talent and and the way he could just compose these things and the, the vision that he had. It was unreal. And it's so he's kind of on this path now of like, okay, I've shedded this ridiculous glam thing that wasn't me. That was just this overproduced ridiculous thing that just hampered me for a few years. Now I'm really on my path of like, I'm going to be this star in my own right. Right. Starts, starts building a following, but sadly this being uh 1982 New York and him being gay he uh he is literally one of the first people in the country to get AIDS AIDS he he literally referred to it they said in the documentary is band-aids he's got band-aids yeah he didn't literally. that's what he was calling he didn't even know if this was 1982 that he gets it they, they show right. they show a headline um, 41 gay men in New York contract some weird cancer or something yeah. like that. Like they, this was before anybody even knew what it was. And um, he uh, word he's, gets he's, out that he's sick and everyone starts canceling on him. And uh, he, he dies. He dies alone, penniless uh, in his little part in the, in the, pyramid apparently dies at the, the piano. Is he just at the piano yeah uh his body isn't found for like four or five days uh you know and, to, and that's just sort of what he's you know what he's dealt and he he kind of, they said he really kind of kept to himself the last few months he knew he was sick he was going downhill his family didn't really visit him as much as they said his mom right. know, loved him she had her issues and i don't think was strong enough she couldn't handle him at she at could never sick. admit that he was that he was gay so right for him to die of you know what was then seen as a gay disease must have been too much for her. they said at one point in, in the um she catches him in bed with another boy right and still and, like, and still won't admit that he's gay no no just totally turns you know t- turns a blind eye to it so he dies but now his you know he's he's written this at least part of this musical i think a big bulk of it mm-hmm. unless he has all these other songs that he's written and just all the sheet music and all this great stuff a couple little recordings all this stuff that's left behind and so it's like okay now he's going you know somebody's going to take this and let's let the world see this and unfortunately for him posthumously it's going to be it you know but for him but like the world will see this uh but instead his dad who he had like another difficult relationship with but like it seemed like they were sort of you know he was sort of supportive but just again sort of turned a blind eye to everything and didn't you know didn't really deal with them too much went to his apartment after he passed away and hired these two like punks in the street street. two thugs just to go into his apartment go into this amazing uh, pyramid apartment and destroy everything just like all sheet music all of his costumes just like he just wanted it erased he didn't want this embarrassment i guess yeah of his son uh let's let's put it all to rest put it all to bed destroy everything so all of the sheet music his whole legacy other than i think his dad kept his personal diary like his personal journal and that was it and everything's just gone just gone off the face of the earth and it's just nobody has any really record i think there's like one song 
that somebody has video of him playing. The, yeah, the, there's there's like one last. Re- there's there's very little to uh, there's very little out there to to find on him. Right. So it's his dad just basically erased him, you know, off the face of the earth. So then nobody's going to go, and that's part of the reason why I think a big part of the reason why there's not this legacy, and. You know, people in the mainstream have never heard of this guy ever. I've you know, never 20, ever. Forty, 40 yeah. years later, I went. I'm he, he's compared to David Bowie. I, I went onto a just out of curiosity. I went onto a David Bowie, uh, um, like Facebook page. You know, for like David Bowie World or whatever. And I, I was like, hey, has anybody in here ever heard of Joe Bryan? And like nobody had. Like, there's. I've I, it's just to, to to me that that I've I've studied that era so much I've read I've probably read a dozen books on Bowie you know and, and so much on glam rock and I've ne- until until a week ago I never yeah. heard of this guy yeah it just just uh, unreal and um, although you know in some circles there were people like in the glam scene and in just the rock scene like there were people who were like. This guy's actually great. If you if you strip him of all this yeah. glam stuff, his music is amazing. Uh, they had uh, Joe Elliott from Joe Def Elliott, Leppard. Def Leppard. Was they covered. About they how, covered uh, heartbeat. Heartbeat is yeah, his so song. They, yeah. So they covered one of his songs, and like so, there is this legacy to a certain extent out there because there there are some people. I think who, on Morrissey's last album opened with a cover of one of his songs. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, and it's because because the music is pretty amazing. And it's just if you can find it and, and and even the glam rock, like if you listen to it without seeing him, like if somebody just put this on my iPhone and just I started listening to songs, I'm like, oh, this is great 70s music, kind of theatrical, just fun rock opera yeah. type stuff without going through this whole machine of like this half assed produced figure that that Jerry Brandt tried to do. And, and I think basically it really goes down to how many talented people are out there. And what it takes to match that talent with fame and success and fortune. And it's just a combination, I think, of talent and timing and the proper promotion yeah. and just a certain amount of luck. It's yeah. just luck. I mean, there are, there are great playwrights out there. There are great comedians out there. There are great musicians out there that are unknown. But he had a lot of it. You know, he had the talent. I mean, that's probably actually the only piece that he had. He had the talent. He had the complete wrong promotion. Yes. Even though I think, you know, I think... It was Jerry just, Brandt. it was misguided. I don't think Jerry Brandt was a bad guy. They, they paint yeah. him out to be like a Svengali and this, this sort of like a sinister figure. But yeah. Jerry Brandt had a 50-50 deal with him. If, if Joe Bryath conquered the world, Jerry Brandt went along for the ride. Right. So and he, um, just, he just went about it at a, as, as we know of like, you know, somebody just trying to catch the wave of like. Just a shortcut. Think? And instead of seeing this guy for like he's this singular talent, let's try to take him up through the ranks and try to you know promote. It's like we're going to create this whole thing, and like he, I think he did it out of to a certain extent the goodness, you know, it, it, from a good place, but it just didn't work. So he 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 had the talent, but he didn't have the promotion and just the timing. Like as part of that promotion and that hype, they're like we're going to go all the way with I'm gay. This is who I am. I'm the true fairy of yeah. rock is, you know, the, and people just, he thought that it was going to be embraced. He's like, okay, this is going to be, and just the backlash was crazy. They're just like, we are not ready for this as a city, as a nation, as a world, yeah. we're not ready for an openly gay, you know, rock star and just totally got shut down. Yes. Know? It's, it's too bad. He could have, he could have gone in so many, he could have been like you said, like Andrew Lloyd Webber. He also yeah. could have been like an Elton John. Mm-hmm. He could have been like a Freddie Mercury. 
Yeah. I, I mean, his, you know, his, his voice, his voice was really good. I don't, I wouldn't put it at like a Freddie Mercury or David Bowie, but, but the talent was just, I mean, it, if, if you watch the documentary, Jabriath AD, when you see him recording the album in the sessions, like you said, he's, he's running, he, he's running around the studio, like Mick Jagger. Yeah. Composing he, everybody, telling everybody where to come in. I mean, it was wild to watch. Oh, and, 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 you know, playing the piano and just going crazy and, and singing. Um, he's directing all these people. He just knows what it is. Uh, one of the people, because he had these actors from Hair, a lot of them, like the chorus, yeah. were singing. And then they brought some of their friends. One of the friends was this long-haired dude yes. named Richard Gere. Yeah. Richard Gere was just happened to be there. And somebody, I think, brought him along. I don't think Richard Gere was in Hair. I mean, I, maybe, I, I, but I, I, I'm I not sure. Know. But you can see Richard Gere singing in the background of this thing. But, like, he just was in his element. If you just like said, look, here's a couple, you know, here's a hundred thousand dollars, just stay in the studio and do what you do. He would have banged out 10 amazing albums yes. in a couple of years. Yeah. 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 But I thought Jerry Brandt, like, so the, the, I actually think he had good intentions and I, yeah. I sort of sympathized with him because I know he got painted out the villain in all this because Joe Bryant. And people didn't... did say, I, I will say that some of it, I know Joe Bryant later on was bitter about it and accused him of siphoning a lot of money off and maybe laundering some of the money that they made there so he could fund his – One these, of his clubs, yeah. Club and the and, – and the, the rock I don't, circus. I don't, I don't, the, I don't, circus. I don't think that was the case. Like it, it, it does – you, you saw – they interviewed people from, from Electra that were like, this was just enough was enough. Like he wasn't, he yep. wasn't generating money. We had to pull the plug. Right. But Jerry Brandt doesn't um, – he doesn't hold him to that in perpetuity thing. You know, he, right. he said, I can't stop him from – and they said – one of the musicians interviewed said when Jerry Brandt parted ways with Joni Mitchell, he had one of those in perpetuity deals with her. And he very rightfully could have been – vested in um did I, wait did i say Joni mitchell i meant carly simon. yeah carly 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 simon, simon. Yeah. as her first manager he he had a contract with her where he was vested in her for life and he could have he can he could have still been making money off of her today but mm -hmm. when when she uh when they split up he gave the music back to her he was like listen i'm not i i, I don't i, I don't want to take your money for the rest of your life, you know, you go, go, go have a wonderful career. So when I, yeah. when I heard that, I, I thought, I, I don't think this guy is the evil figure that they tried making him out to be. I think he, exactly. I think he was guilty of just wanting to be famous and he was looking for shortcuts also. Yeah. He was an artist. He was a businessman. And that's what some, a lot of times those two things don't, go well together and uh you know he just he tried to he tried to ride the wave of glam and, right and just it didn't it didn't fit it didn't work it didn't um, work and then an interesting follow-up to him is i i was i went online last night to see what happened to him and he he uh he died of covid yeah, yeah yeah just like two three months ago two three months ago in january. in january yeah 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 um so um, one of the things that it reminded me of, and this is just a total side note, but I, I got, if people want to look this up and Ken, you should too, there is, and I don't want to make too many parallels because Joe Bryath was this singular talent. Uh, there is a guy who, the, the first 
TV show that I wrote on was this like clip show that you know, and we would have these like weird guests on from these like weird reality shows and that type of thing. And I forget what reality show it was on, but there's this guy who is, I believe, a Polish pop star. He's a Polish pop star. His name is Kuba Ka. All right. And people should look this up because it's hilarious. This guy named is Kuba Ka, K-U-B-A-K-A, Kuba Ka, who we actually had on as a guest. We brought him in. He was in New York and we, we, we had him on and did these things in the show. He's basically, from what I understand and from what I remember, he's this like really rich kid. I mean, he's an adult now, but like this really, uh, you know, kind of trust fund kid from Poland who decides he's going to be a pop star. Like I'm going to take the money that my family gave me and I'm going to be this huge pop star. And he's like this good looking guy, yeah. and, you know, all this uh, one of the least talented people I've ever, I've ever seen. <laughs> and ju- and maybe, I don't know, maybe he's got his own special talents. I, and when he did come in, he was a very nice guy and he, he was, he, he had a good sense of humor. Uh, but there are some videos of him trying to perform at these nightclubs where like he would invite all of these record producers and record companies out and agents. And he had this whole theatrical show and it's a lot of them are just disasters. And yeah. to a certain extent, that's what Jobriath, some of these weird stage shows, like when he went on tour, when he went on midnight special was unfortunately the music was great, but like just this spinal tap of, just half-assed pageantry that, yeah. uh, but, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you want some fun, look up Kubaka and, uh, you're going to find some, some very interesting, uh, interesting videos of this guy. All right. Yep. I'll look that up. All right. I think, uh, we leave anything out, anything else? Uh, no, go listen to Joe Bryant. L- listen to, listen to some of his stuff. It's just, it's, it's really, we'll put some really clips. Yeah. Music. I've been listening to the album. It is actually real. And then that's the sad part of this is, if they had just, if they had just steered him in a different direction, if they if they had just taken their time with this, yeah, um, I I think his name would be up there with with all the greats that that ever, yeah. he'd, he'd be a household name. This the singer songwriters of the of the seventies, like you said, the Carpenters, Elton John, uh, you know, to a certain extent Bowie, yeah, and and uh, would have just and I think then became theatrical as well and just. Broadway star yeah. and just uh, not uh, it wasn't in the cards, but a uh, really interesting story. Check out on Amazon, Joe Bryath, AD, really interesting documentary, uh, really weird animated interludes, which yes. were interesting. Yeah. That sort of told part of the story. Uh, so uh, yeah, but just, just uh, definitely check that out and uh, check out our other episodes that are out there. We're starting to amass a couple of them. Now, if you have any, ideas about the show if you have any suggestions for artists or bands you think or stories we should cover uh find us on twitter at at rock and roll pod and uh and and let us know follow us at at rock and roll pod yes and uh like and subscribe to our as they say i think right to uh on anywhere where you can find podcasts smash uh, that subscribe button smash that subscribe <laughs> see we're gonna be youtube stars someday can you and i we're gonna be selling out clubs everywhere wearing uh, King Kong, Marlena Dietrich outfits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We could be like a duo. I like I think it. So. Yeah. All right. I think we did it, Ken. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you to uh, Minga Kahuna and uh, everybody at Shared Universe. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, again, go listen to Joe Bryath and uh, check out some other uh, of our other episodes. Yes. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.